We're in the parking lot of KGNU, <laughs> and we're going to talk to Thistle for a little while about where she comes from, um, what she's passionate about, and especially about Women's Liberation Radio News. Um, Thistle, would you like to tell us about where you come from? Yeah, uh, I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and I've lived there for a long time. I went to middle school and high school there, and then after I graduated in the 1980s, I traveled a lot. Actually, I went to college first in Minneapolis and then um, came back to Madison briefly for two years, went to Europe, went to Madrid, Spain, and learned Spanish, and I taught English, um, and then I came back, and I went to graduate school and studied medieval Spanish literature at the University of Michigan while I was teaching Spanish to undergraduates, and I did that for five years of teaching, two years for the master's degree, but I stayed on teaching um, and really enjoyed that. And then I came back to Madison, and that's when I, that was the early 2000s, and that's when I started like getting more adventurous, and I took off on my bicycle and headed south, and I was discovering not so much through reading, but more through observation in nature, and that nature was everywhere, um, imminent, uh, instead of, you know, something out in the woods and pristine, and you imagine nature being something that is wild, or, I mean, it is wild, but that it's everywhere. It's anywhere you are, you find signs of nature, which is, you know, patterns and the structure that gives life, um, and death. And, and so I just started wanting to have a more direct experience of learning through riding my bicycle and being like a gypsy nomad and, uh, did that in the early two thousands and ended up living in Austin, Texas in a makeshift eco village, um, that people, well, it was an offshoot of the rhizome collective, uh, which you know, the Radish Collective you were talking about earlier here in Boulder, there's a, an under, it's it's not underground, but there's like a culture in, in on this land, this occupied um, indigenous land that has uh, been so harmed by Western civilization. There's still within it uh, magic th- because you can't fully kill that, I don't think. And and so um, Austin, Texas was this amazing eco-village experience, building a structure to live in through found materials on the side of the road and writing songs about it and the water, really connecting to water and the species that are found in the Barton Springs, um, a special kind of, it's like a, an amphibian, that a salamander that lives just in Barton Springs and so like beginning to understand like the unique things about eco niche ecosystems, you know, micro, um, environments and just how much diversity there is, uh, in nature. And, and so then I guess riding my bicycle going South that year, we left on nine 11, actually September 11th, 2003. And that act was like the biggest deal of my whole life, you know, like it was, it was like being at a crossroads and making a decision to go one way. And my life was just never the same after that. Like I've just, 
been on a bicycle journey, even if I'm not on a bicycle, I'm still in that mindset um, and kind of ready to shapeshift and turn. And um, all the while I say that, I also have made a decision to put my roots down back in Madison because it's always, which is so weird about what's happening to me right now, because Madison's always kind of been since my childhood, a place where I can seek nurturing and have a sense of security and familiarity and all of these things. But over the past two and a half years, mostly it's the past two and a half years, but really it started in 2014. Yeah. uh, Did you ask about WLRN? You did. Okay. So getting to the present moment in 2014, I interviewed Sheila Jeffries, a lesbian feminist professor of politics and women's studies, who wrote Gender Hurts, uh, a, fem- a feminist analysis of the politics of transgenderism. And was that part of a, a volunteerism for that radio station? You'd become a producer? No, 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 not at all. I was able to get that program on the air because um, they have a weekly program on Mondays called the Access Hour. And it was born out of the idea of free speech in the 70s or the 80s. It, you know, it was created by members of the, the community radio station collective to um, honor free speech, to give the people who are listening to this, that the community radio station is for and by the community. And so people play the tuba for an hour. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, you can do anything on the access hour. So it's like the free speech zone, as long as you don't break the FDC or FCC regulations, which is like no swearing. So anyway, that's how I got Sheila Jeffries on there. And for that reason, I think they didn't yank the program. Molly Stentz, the news director, who still currently is the news director, she sat down a week before the program and um, was like, you realize what you're doing is going to have consequences, you know? And I was like, yes, I do. I realize that. And she's like, I just wanted to be sure that you understood that. And it sounded like a veiled threat in some ways. They were worried for my security. They're like, don't ride your bike alone down on the you know lakeshore path coming to the, the station tonight. You should really get a ride. You should have an ex- escort. I was interviewing her live, even though she was coming from Australia, Skyped in or however they did it with the phones. Still, it was a live interview, and so nobody knew what to expect, and it was billed as this controversial thing, and the Isthmus newspaper picked it up, and um, it just became like a big media thing in Madison, and the the words hateful bigotry came up right away, and that what you're going to hear on WORT on Thistle Pedersen's program is hateful bigotry against trans women. I think they might have said trans women like right away. You know, not just trans people, but, and the thing is, is that the group trans women, if you actually look at what that, what that term represents, it represents men. And primarily it's not a sexuality or a sexual orientation. It's, um, you know, it's like men, most of them are straight, you know? And so like that, considering how women are so oppressed through uh, sexual violence, um, it's, uh, it's abusive to even the, okay. And so here, here I'm proving their point, right? Like to me, the word trans woman is, is indicating of the abuse that men engage in 
and to, to force women to accept penis as female is like rape culture, you know? And so I think early on, I kind of felt that on like some instinctual level that they, that I had never really articulated, even though I read, you know, gender hurts and I read Sheila Jeffrey's analysis before I interviewed her. We didn't even get that deep either. We weren't talking specifically about what is this term trans women and why, but, and I didn't know in 2014 that that would be a target of attack. And that so, they're very specific about Thistle Pedersen hates trans women. Okay. You know what I mean? And so the program was incredibly controversial. Um, it was couched as, you know, you're going to encounter a pushback from this. And what happened as a result of airing this on a free speech part of your community radio station? What happened? And how, how did that play out in your life? Well, there was a huge attempt to censor and sort of a crackdown and a, a, a real tension around it and a lot of threats to me that, you know, I would lose all kinds of things. And I did. I ended up losing so much social standing. And I was very naive. I thought if I presented Sheila Jeffrey's arguments in a fair, rational, you know, civil way, but see, they think it's abhorrent that you don't accept penis as female and it really does boil down to that and to me that's the indication of it being a patriarchal misogynistic ideology and philosophy it's like penis is not female and to insist that it is the sexual organ that it is is rape culture you know and so like I think I just sort of like knew that on some level and they could sense it on me. They just projected it onto, onto me. Like she hates trans women. So well, I don't even accept the term trans women. Like I don't accept that. I think men are men. And if they identify as women, that that is a misogynistic practice, whether that individual man is a misogynist or not, it's still a misogynistic practice. It's a reversal. There's like all kinds of reasons why I am never going to accept penis as female. And so you know, this aired, it didn't even get that deep, not even as deep as what you're talking about right, right now. And there was immediately a pushback. Um, you lost voice on that, on that community radio station. Well, as a I did, but temporarily, I mean, that's, what's so amazing about my story is like, yes, there was a lot of pushback. There were a lot of threats, but I was in such a good high standing, um, amongst my community as a free-loving community environmentalist, organizer, musician, fun-loving, dancing, sprightly, you know, like, like lots of like, I don't know, good energy, right? And so they were upset with me, but they hadn't like banned me. But then a year later, I came back and I did a documentary of the last Michigan Women's Music Festival. And I remember sitting with Molly and being like, I hope they don't come and get me this time, you know? And she was like, why would they come and get you? You're documenting a women's music festival. I'm like, this is not just any, any old women's music festival. This is lesbian, you know, women's music festival from 1974. And there was like a lot of politics around it too, you know? And so, and plus it was being shut down by trans activism. Basically, you know, a lot of the, the reason why the Michigan women's music Fe festival never continued on or I mean it is it's remorphing it's re but there wasn't like a clear plan it was more like okay finally we're gonna just have some relief and give up because they've you know they've been so vicious um, um so this is an ongoing pressure 
um, to insist that 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 you women can't, you can't have this perspective, you can't have these spaces, and you aired a program about the women's uh, the Michigan Women's Festival, right? And what happened as a okay, result of that? Okay, and so then program. here I'm really glad I get to tell the, these details because I think they're really important. So I aired the Michigan Women's Music Festival program. The anniversary. I spent a lot of time at the station in the studio, um, getting to know the equipment and working on the sound engineering and the editing and mixing the music in with the interviews and going through all the hours of tape that I had, you know, to like capture what I wanted to capture in that one hour, you know, and um, I I, and I solicited volunteers. So similar to what WLRN does in some ways is like. I wanted to rep- represent the collective voice of the Michigan Women's Music Festival and all of the different aspects of it. You know, the political, but also the music, obviously, the art, the culture, the woman's culture, the village, the village that, that springs up in the woods and the, the ferns and the representation of nature and like all the all these different aspects. So I spent a lot of time at the station and I got to know people and they got used to me being there. And um, so it seemed like I was a regular volunteer, but I wasn't. I was just producing an access hour program. So it was very easy to kick me out and just say goodbye and never see me again and just dust your hands or whatever. But after that program, I was released in 2016, wait, 2015. At the end of 2015, there was a lot of positive uh, reinforcement for it. Uh, by feminists and by Michigan Women's Music Festival participants. And so I asked for permission to do what I wanted was 28 minutes or 26 minutes, you know, whatever's the standard for having station identification breaks and all of that. So 26 minutes a month is what I asked the programming committee for, to produce more shows like the Michigan Women's Musical Festival show that I had produced and like the Sheila Jeffries. They knew that that's what I wanted to do was like have that particular radical feminist voice that's not on the air regularly. Because when I aired in 2014, there were five programs that I at least, it was at least three. And let's just say that I remember about five programs that came on and they didn't tell me that they were coming on but to say to condemn my program you know to say that that was hate speech and so I um what happened with your request they did they they denied the request but I want to say something about WORT that that I'm not getting at the Wilmar Center which is a neighborhood center WORT listened to me for a long time. We were in dialogue for a long time. I was go- programming committee meetings are open to the public. And when I was banned from the station, I was not banned from the public meetings. And I think that that comes from a long, long standing tradition of free speech and democracy and community participation and like true inclusion in the good way, you know, of that word. And um, I don't feel welcome to go there at all at this point, but that's more on a, like, I think technically I'm allowed to go there. I am allowed to go there. I'm no longer banned. But I did write to the volunteer coordinator, Glenn, I can't remember his last name, but anyway, I asked him if I could be a volunteer at the station, you know, after the ban. And he was like, nobody's interested in having you be a volunteer. I asked around the station and no, sorry, we don't have any opportunities, which... 
you know, so in a sense, I'm still banned. Um, if you can't volunteer there and I'm not allowed to do an access hour, you know, like, so technically I'm not banned, but realistically I am, you know. And as a result of, well, let me, let me tell you the whole story about like, they banned me on a technicality because what happened was like here at this community radio station, there are certain numbers of studios, certain numbers of computers and if a studio, you, you can sign up for studio time. And so I was, I signed up for some studio time. I was going to use their phones to call Lear Keith. And I don't remember who the other, Elizabeth Hungerford, for the, the two first guests on this pilot program called WLRM, Women's Liberation Radio News, that was going to be 26 minutes long. And we were going to do it on, in fact, we did it. We created the program, but it didn't happen for five months. Like it took five months after, okay, so they banned me because I didn't have, um, a show. I didn't have a regular show. And I, and the programming committee had not asked me to create a prototype for them to discuss my programming. And so I didn't have authorization. I didn't have authorization to use the studio because I wasn't officially a volunteer. So that was the, the basis for their ban, but it was because they saw my name, the, what I call trans activists, um, some of them in the Feminist News Collective, they saw my name on the studio door, signed up for some studio time, and they're like, wait a second, she's done with her access hour. What is she doing? You know what I mean? And that's what, that's how I got banned. And it was a full ban by the president of the board at the time, Steve, God, I can't remember his last name. I think there's a Z and a W in it. But anyway, so that was that was like January of 2016, and the ban was lifted in secret in a secret executive committee meeting or something like that. I don't know. But like I said, WRT is a lot more transparent than the Wilmar Center. The Wilmar Center, you go on their website, you don't know when the board meetings are. You know, you have to like open up a PDF document in order to, and then it's like two years old, so you don't even know if it's reliable information the Wilmar Center, which is my current, you know, organization in Madison that's a community-based organization, a neighborhood center that's inclusive of all people, where an administrator there literally in writing put, you're not allowed to perform on this stage because of hatred, bigotry, and discrimination, that I am engaging in hatred, bigotry, and discrimination against trans with a capital T, she writes, women and trans with a capital T men in writing. This is why I don't get to perform my song about my cat that passed away and how I would take her to the park and do yoga in the park as she was frolicking in the woods. And it was like this really beautiful song that I was going to sing on their stage. And it had nothing to do with anything. And which is the other thing about WRT, at least they were questioning this quote-unquote controversial content of this lesbian feminist political science professor you know what I mean like I was like interviewing the enemy but in the in the case of the Wilmar what I was doing was completely unrelated to any political activity and And so I'm familiar with that as well I've been deplatformed before when what I was going to talk about was anti-civ analysis but the association of being a radical feminist even an association with that was enough for the culture and for the platform to be shut down for me. So I really identify with this story and, and your story of how the culture, as well as the institutions that are part of that culture, are completely robbing you of voice. 
and us no of a voice that you no longer have voice but the thing that for me is really really inspiring about the path that you're on as tough as it is about losing all of that you have still managed to create the women's liberation radio news and to be around for three years producing a monthly podcast every month not missing a month celebrating our three-year anniversary really having that good good old-fashioned collective cooperative spirit of mutual aid and collective decision making you know and so the first part of this talk is about the really hard part where you know it gets shut down all of those avenues for being able to present this analysis to present this perspective all of that gets shut down and gets completely stymied by the society that you're in by by your you know your community which is turned on you in Wisconsin by the institutions once again by the radio station you know you're kind of there but you're kind of not so how did you take all of that and create this brand new thing you just mentioned a name that you were pitching to the community radio station. That's the same name that I'm hearing for what you're doing now successfully well, exactly. for three years. I mean, it's amazing because Women's Liberation Radio News was going to happen no matter what. Like, if, if they had granted us the 26 minutes a month, we would have done it on WORT. But they didn't grant us the 26 minutes per month. And so I found a way. And, you know... It is a collective project, but I, uh, I'm i the founder, and it falls on my shoulders in, in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, we are all volunteers. There are group dynamics, but what I like about a monthly podcast with volunteers from all over the world, our youngest member is 18 or 19 years wow. old from India, Damianti, and she often does the world news, is that... There's like a drop in nature to it, which I think can be really appealing, especially for youth culture. It's like, you don't have to be like Leo in here. Like we were just meeting. It's like his full-time job is doing the sound engineering for La Lucha Sigue, which I can't wait to check out that program <laughs> because he's, he's doing an insane amount of production, which production is great. Like I totally understand the, the value of that as a media activist, but it's also a high level skill and an art and what we're really into is community-based getting the information out there because who else is going to get this censored information out there and so we do it from the grassroots we do it from our hearts we do it from the the necessity and so it's not it's one part art and also one part necessity and so there's like a real patchwork quilt feeling to it and you might hear technical difficulties and it's not like completely smooth and smoothed out and produced and and you also do it with a a code of conduct is what my understanding is um a, an agreement as a collective that keeps you together even when you have disputes even when you have friction even when you have disagreements that that you've got a process that you go through to resolve those yeah that, that fascinates came... me as well because a lot of times we enter into um, you know, doing work without laying down a way to be able to struggle together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that? I saw that, I saw the need for that really early on when one of our collective members had a very dominant personality 
and she kind of took over things and then she sort of was like I don't like what this member is doing I don't like what that member is doing and I'm like wow she's really picking picking them out like flies you know or what taking them out like flies and I was thinking huh that's not really my mode of operation I'm not like that and yet you know so there was like a power struggle with me and this other woman and she ended up turning on me and leaving and you know saying that it was not her project but she was very professional in a lot of ways too like I don't think she bad mouths us you know what I mean but after that experience I realized and that was early on that was like in the first six months after that experience I was like I think we need to have some agreements and then you can and you can come up with them collectively but then you refer back to them and it's like appealing to everyone's higher self you know that I find that to be a concept that's useful that each of us no matter how corrupted we may seem to be on the outside or how wrong and you know horrible and whatever narcissistic all these labels and names that people throw at each other all the time that when you come up with a code of conduct or agreements for group behaviors and conflict resolution in the beginning the formation of the group then it's like it came from the group and you can always refer back to it and it kind of triggers people's memories and that's how it is with children too it's like they know the you know what I mean they come up with the rules make sense a lot of times but we have all these different parts of our brains you know what I mean so sometimes we have to like come up with rules and refer I love the written aspect of it for that reason do you think that it's even more important when you're doing something incredibly risky when you are taking um taking on a politic or you're taking the stance that you're taking and getting out information that isn't available anywhere else to really have that foundational agreement so that you can stay strong because it's not an easy thing that you're doing you know it's born out of necessity it's born out of being silenced do you think that that's even more important I do think it's really important and I also think it's an ongoing process and Like, solidarity is in our agreements and a strong intention behind WLRN, sisterhood and solidarity. But we have been attacked by gender activists uh, or activists, whatever you want to call them. People who interfere with your process. They, They don't want you to be there broadcasting. So, and we've had to hunker down and, you know, so we've had like these situations of repression it's great to that's like 37 times that we've done it you know and so we're coming on our 38th time and and I think that's a lot in in terms of radical feminist history creation you know I've seen so many zines where it's like edition one and then it's over mm-hmm. you know because like you said it is really hard to keep collectives together to keep people focused and motivated and having a good good um, rapport with one another, especially when you're talking about the volatile nature of, of many of the subjects that we're addressing. And we wrote that into our agreements. It's like, give yourself the benefit of the doubt and give your sister the benefit of the doubt. She's trying. That's why she's here is because she cares, you know. Um, and these are very, very sensitive button type issues that were, and so if, if a sister gets really upset about something, just try to remember that, you know, try to remember what we're doing here. We're not just like making lemonade. We're like revolutionaries. We're like changing culture. We're getting information that's like forbidden information out 
to a crucial number of women. I mean, this is my hope is that it's disseminating enough that enough women are listening that they're going to have an idea of what kind of uprising we might be able to have if the shit hits the fan, or maybe you would say when the shit hits the fan. It's not over and it's not finished cooking, (laughs) but it's, it's an amazing story and an ongoing one. And it really is important, you know, when you're talking to somebody to say, hey, Thistle, how do you um, support the work that you're doing? What do you do in solidarity? Where can you be found? You know, where can you donate? Could you share that with oh, us? Oh, of course. <laughs> well, um, you can donate online at our WordPress site. It's a PayPal account. It goes to wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. And basically... We are, you know, we have a volunteer who strictly focuses on graphic design and she's one of those sort of peripheral volunteers. That's what I like. And it it very much reminds me of the community radio station that I came from. Some people are more involved than others and there's space for all levels of involvement. How often do you broadcast? Where, where is Mm -hmm. that? And where's the donation site? Yeah. Yeah. The first Thursday of every month. And we've been doing it, you know, since May of ni- or of 2016. Are um, you archived so we can find... We're archived on good. SoundCloud. Um, oh, great. That if you Google WLRN or Women's Liberation Radio News, actually, is the best way to find us. Um, because there are other radio stations. I think there's one in Florida that's a WLRN. So if you just type in WLRN, it might not come up. But if you put in Women's Liberation Radio Good. News, Good it's know. like the first thing that comes up in Google. And then you just go to our WordPress site and the donate button is there. And we have this thing called um, listener sponsorship modeled after the community radio station that I learned a lot of thing, skills at. And um, what that is is where you pledge $5 a month or $10 a month or 15 or 20 whatever your pocketbook can afford. And then you sign up for it to automatically be withdrawn from your account. So you hardly even notice it. I actually am donating $5 a month regularly to WLRN. Because with those donations, that helps us reach people. It helps us pay for, like, I was talking about the graphic design artists. Well, you know, it costs money to create really amazing T-shirts. Or it costs money to create these, like, she did this design that she's like, I've never worked so small before where we made these buttons. And she made a lot of designs for these buttons. And it's like, so those things have their cost. Uh And then also traveling, like we were invited, WLRN was invited to the Vancouver Rape Relief Center's annual event that they've been doing since the Montreal Massacre of 1980. When was that? Or was it? I can't remember, but it's been going on for a really long time. And so they do a monthly, I mean, a yearly um, remembrance. And they invited us. And they, at that time, I don't know, I mean, you've probably heard in the news that they lost their funding due to a trans-identified male, a a man who identifies as a woman named uh, Morgan Ogre. And he lives in Vancouver, and he, you know, trashes Megan Murphy, and he trashes the Rape rape Crisis Center, uh, Vancouver Rape Relief, um, and... 
So they lost their funding, but at the time that they invited us, which was December of 2018, they were able to cover one of our plane tickets, and then we were able to cover one of our plane tickets, too. And so the two of us went out, Julia Beck and I went to Vancouver, and, you know, all the big names in feminism were there. It was extremely exciting. It was very beautiful to commune. There was a strong Indigenous woman presence. There was, like, a male ally. It was open to the public. I mean, it really modeled a way of how our culture could become woman-centered, like you've talked about, um, and benefit everyone. And and be... It, safe space for women creates safe space for everyone, you know, in the Brilliant. long run. Brilliant. Um, and so... And all this... And, you know, and, and donating these funds creates those possibilities. Exactly. It opens those doors <laughs> for the ability to connect. And we're constantly trying to connect. That's what all of this is about. Yeah. And, 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 you know, sparks fly and magic happens. Is Are there any last things that you want to say? Because we could talk forever about all the brilliant things that have happened um, because of your activism. Any last words that you want to share? Oh, just, you know, I wish that everyone could see each other's humanity. You know, like, I guess I've been wishing that since I was the fifth since I was 15 years old and in my English sophomore English class and hearing Jimi Hendrix play the uh, national anthem at Woodstock you know my English teacher playing that and how so much of war is about dehumanization of the enemy and like really that's what civil dialogue and discourse and an open society is about is being able to see each other's humanity and hear each other's thought processes and not be afraid not be afraid of somebody pondering and wondering and having a philosophical analytical mind you know so that's that's where I feel like underlying all of this the way that I've done things is like a trust like things are going to work out it's going to work out if you just stay on the true to the path of humanity I don't know what the word is but like realizing that for me feminism and for a lot of women it's human rights for women you know like women are human beings we're adult human females um we are your mothers and daughters and we have this incredible life-giving power and that's not something to be afraid of it's something to be worshipped and honored and recognized and celebrated and it's a part of the great wonder wonders of life of the world that women are able to you know give life as we do and I'm it's just it's it's kind of like it's so counterintuitive to try on the idea of that being so threatening that the violent forces that be project and say that is violent and it's like no actually male violence is violence (laughs) not women who are worshiping of our you know capacity to be creative and to give birth and like to create culture and all these things so I guess those are my parting words. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you so much, Thistle. Yeah, yeah. And it can happen anywhere. It happens in cars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it happens on bicycles. And it happens especially in relationship to each other and to the land. Thank you.